Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation to the fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with the Ohio Securities Commissioner about a new program rolling out across the state for financial planners and advisors. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Clay Gordon has an update on legislation at the State House dealing with transgenders. A look at where abortion stands one year after Roe v. Wade was overturned. And a look at the declining occupancy rate for offices in downtown Columbus. In about 40 minutes, I'll have information about a maternal mental hotline for women who are pregnant or going through postpartum depression. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with Holly Holson, the state director for AARP Ohio. First up on Columbus Perspective on the phone with me. Andrea Seit, who is the Ohio Securities Commissioner with the Ohio Department of Commerce. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, Tell us in a nutshell what you do with that title. (laughs) So we regulate the securities industry, stockbrokers, investment advisors. We license those people. We register investment products that are sold in the state. And then we also investigate securities investment fraud, so things like Ponzi schemes. Ah, okay. And uh, we're going to talk about something that's, I guess, a a new program that is starting up at Ohio. And as we air this, you've actually gone through the first program like this on Friday. Tell us uh, what it is that you're doing. Sure. Well, thanks for having us and giving us an opportunity to talk about this. I'm really excited about it. Um, We launched a program this past year called Recovery Within Reach. And what we're trying to do is a lot lot like a lot of other people is try to tackle the substance use disorder crisis that we're seeing in our state. And so what we want to do is educate our financial advisors about the disease, let them know that this is something that's definitely impacting their clients, whether they realize it or not, and really help them be another community resource for people in the area that are living, uh, you know, with the disease. And again, we're just trying to tackle that and make everyone really engaged on that issue. And the the problem with uh, substance use disorder, when we talk about things in your life that can burn a hole in your wallet or in your savings uh, in your future, this can be a, a real game changer. Sure. Um, you know, a lot of people don't realize, um, you know, how much it costs um, in, in terms of treatment, how much it costs in terms of just enabling the disease. Um, We did a survey last year, Dave, of our Ohio financial advisors and asked them, you know, what kind of costs are they seeing for their client families? And they estimated that the median average cost of a family per year uh, who's dealing with substance use disorder is $35,000. That's a lot of money. (laughs) can have a really devastating impact on their finances. And so we want to make sure that uh, they're preparing for that if it ever pops up in their life, that our advisors can spot families who are in need. A lot of times people don't want to talk about it because they may, you know, be ashamed or feel guilt about it, just don't feel comfortable. There's still a lot of stigma associated with substance use disorder. And so we want to make people uh, feel comfortable. We want our advisors to be able to spot those client families in need and get them the resources that they need because you're right, it can be really devastating. So financial advisors and planners and and counselors who help people will dive down deep into into spending and and how people live their lives, and yet this might be something that they may not know. I mean, how how do they approach that topic? Uh, Because that would have to be very sensitive, I would think. Yeah, it is a sensitive topic, but our financial advisors are fiduciaries. They help their clients with a lot of other sensitive topics like death in the family, 
diseases, other diseases like cancer. And so a lot of things can happen that create crises in a client's family. And our advisors, you know, have experience with that. We just want them to shift those skills, right, and shift it over to something that is probably a little more taboo of a topic. And so, you know, a lot of times they'll be the first ones to see signs of the disease because financial aspects are sometimes some of the first things that happen, right? So people might start, um, you know, spending more than they used to. They might be having multiple car accidents and, and you know, continually <laughs> repurchasing cars. They may be withdrawing retirement savings really unexpectedly. And those could all be red flags indicating there is something amiss here. It might not be substance use disorder, but it might be. And so if the financial advisor is on the lookout for some of those red flags, some of those financial cues, uh, they can let the uh, client family know that they are trained and they can help them. They can direct them to resources to help get their loved one into recovery. Talking with Andrea Seitz, she's the Ohio Securities Commissioner with the Ohio Department of Commerce. You know, it's, it's kind of like that in the stigma campaign. Uh, the more that this is brought out in the, into the light, even in ways like this, it helps uh, reassure people that this is something that's happening to an awful lot of people and something that you can get behind you. You're exactly right. We want people to open up and have those conversations uh, because that really is the first step. You know, we have stories of people who aren't using their insurance to get their loved ones into treatment because they're afraid that their employer might find out and might have a negative reaction to that. You'd never see somebody, you know, kind of sidestep insurance if they had a loved one going through cancer or some other disease. So we don't want people uh, to have that reaction. We want them to feel comfortable. We want employers. We want financial advisors, we want everyone in the community to help support them because, you know, treatment works. We want to help people get into treatment. So you're presenting this program, and and you're one of the speakers for it, to uh, these financial planners around Ohio. What level of uh, interest are you getting from it, and, and what sorts of feedback are you expecting? So, you know, we're just, like you just mentioned, we just did our first event in Columbus on Friday on June 30th, and so we had a great reaction there. Um, We're getting some of the larger firms to pay attention, uh, firms like um, Huntington and Nationwide, big firms here in Columbus who are being very supportive, so we're pretty excited about that. Again, you know, it is um, still a sensitive topic and and one that we have to kind of uh, treat delicately, but we've been pretty excited about the the reaction we've gotten, and I'll tell you one of the really amazing things I've learned this past year or have experienced this past year is dealing with financial advisors who've gone through this with their family members. There's not an event I go to where I don't really hear some heart, you know, something that tugs on your heartstrings, somebody who's made it through recovery with a family member, and then, of course, sometimes those who don't. So it's, it's such an important community. I guess uh, one of the speakers or or one of the people who has kind of started this program is a longtime financial planner whose husband was involved in uh, substance use disorder, right? That's right. I mean, it's actually kind of how it started. I saw Cheryl Canzanella speak at a women's event um, a couple years ago where she did. She shared her story. She lost um, her husband to an unintentional overdose. And it's one of those, you know, tugging on your heartstring stories where, um, you know, obviously personal devastation. That's what we don't want to see happen. And Cheryl... um, you know, she is brave enough and courageous enough to share her story to hopefully inspire others to, again, have that conversation, spot the signs. Let's not 
um, let it get too far where, you know, we're past the point of no return. Let's help people get into recovery while we can. Because it is a sensitive area, I would think it's important to figure out ways for these advisors to discuss this with their clients without sounding preachy in a way. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, that's right. And so we, um, as part of our training materials, we have one section that is just about that, right? How do you have these difficult conversations with your client? What are some of the words you can use, words of support, and what words should you avoid? I mean, that's part of the, you know, learning process, too, is that there are words that are stigmatizing, and you want to avoid that language when you're dealing with a family who's going through something as traumatic as that, right? So we have a section on that, and we, we talked about that on Friday. Um, Cheryl actually is the one who led that conversation. She has a group of uh, financial advisors who, like her, have gone through that with their own family. And so they're, you know, you're going to hear it straight from the families who've gone through it themselves. Talking with Andrea Sight with the Ohio Department of Commerce. So uh, what's the future with these programs? Where, where is it going and, uh, and how are people getting involved? So we're making training available in, in a number of different ways. Um, as you already mentioned, we have these live events we just started uh, last week. We're going to go to Toledo next in August, Cincinnati in September, and then Cleveland in November. So we're going to go in every corner of the state into the communities uh, to provide our training. We also have these online modules for people who can't attend a live training. They can just go online, self-study, you know, kind of at their leisure. It's only two hours. And uh, just go to our website and, and take the training that way. You know, when you think about this opioid epidemic, isn't it amazing how far we've come with it? Where people who had substance use disorders, we used to think about them as being, you know, the, the strung out homeless person on the street. And now it's touched so many people that we have financial planners talking to people about how it's impacting their lives. You're, you're exactly right. There's one in 13 Ohioans are living with the disease, right? So it is everywhere, and it's not just the inner cities. It's not just people, like you said, on the streets. It's children, grandchildren um, from every race, from every economic level. Um, it does not discriminate. It really does impact all of us. And so I do think Ohio is lucky. Uh, you know, we have a governor and we have a statewide initiative that really has tried to tackle this disease in a way that I think other states haven't, um, and so I'm really par- proud to be part of it. With 5,000 overdose deaths a year, you think about those who did not die and those who are perhaps just starting down that road. I mean, it, it's just a, a phenomenal amount of people. Yeah, it really is. I mean, uh, it's funny you mentioned 5,000. That's our goal. We want to get 5,000 people trained this year. Uh, we lost over 4,900 people last year in Ohio to an, un- an intentional overdose. And so we want to make sure we train at least one new ally for every loved one lost last year because I, that's the way to get this tackled is through education and through support. That's great. Andrea Seid, again, she's the Ohio Securities Commissioner with the Ohio Department of Commerce. Anything else you'd like to add? No, I just wanted to give our, our campaign website. It's recoverywithinreach.ohio.gov. You can take the training if you're one of the financial advisors out there. But even if you're not, it really is for everyone in the state of Ohio. There's an interactive map where you can find treatment in your area and lots of resources for anyone who might be going through the disease. So thank you for your time. Great. Andrea, thanks so much for the information and your time. Awesome. Thank you. 
Right now, our country feels divided, but there's a place where people are coming together. I got to tell you, I was nervous to talk to someone so different than me. Me too, but I'm glad we are. Love Has No Labels and One Small Step are helping people with different political views, beliefs, and life experiences come together through conversation, and it feels good. Wow, your story is so... uh, Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) When people actually sit down, talk, and listen to one another, they can break down boundaries and connect as human beings. At lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step, you can listen to amazing, life-changing conversations and find simple tools to start a conversation of your own. I know one thing. This conversation gives me hope. It gives me a lot of hope, too. Take a step toward bringing our country and your community together by having the courage to start a conversation at lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step. A message from StoryCorps, Love Has No Labels, and the Ad Council. Every two minutes, a woman in the U.S. is diagnosed with breast cancer. And in that split second, her life changes forever. The toll of breast cancer is great. The need to support those who are battling the disease today is even greater. We're fighting alongside patients because we know one moment can change a lifetime. United by hope, we can end breast cancer. Join our fight. Save lives. I'm a wife and the mother of two kids, and I've got a good job. Bye, Mom. See you, Mom. A pretty important job. Because of my family and my job, I really care about this neighborhood. It's a good neighborhood. Yes, there's some crime. And when I drive to work, like now, I realize that some people here don't trust the police. So the police should be reaching out to this community. And this community should reach out to the police. That's the way to make this a safer place. And when I get to work in the precinct house and put on my uniform, I can tell you as a police officer that this department is reaching out to the community. And the community is doing its part. We're building partnerships. This should be happening everywhere. This is how we can all be safer. Get involved. Start the conversation. Start the conversation and help stop crime. To learn the five things you can do, go to ncpc.org slash preventviolentcrime. A message from the National Crime Prevention Council and the Bureau of Justice Assistance. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Clay Gordon from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Legislation involving Ohio's trans community moving forward at the State House, but not without fierce opposition from the LGBTQ plus groups in the Buckeye State. Thanks for joining us on Face the State. I'm Clay Gordon in for Tracy Townsend this morning. The Ohio House of Representatives passed a controversial bill that would prevent doctors from providing gender-affirming care to trans youth. It also prevents trans athletes from participating in Ohio women's sports. And we should note, House Bill 6, dubbed the Save Women's Sports Act, was added to House Bill 68, also known as the Save Adolescents from Experimentation Act or SAFE Act, through a substitute bill. House Bill 68 would prevent doctors from giving puberty blockers and hormone therapy to trans youth. And as of Friday morning, the legislation was in the Ohio Senate. Tendivy's Ashley Bornanson was there. Singing, protesting, the sounds outside the statehouse while one voice remained silent. 
advocates for trans youth. We are encouraging people to still stay involved in the activities of the state house by directly contacting legislatures, but to stay away from in-person activities, mostly for their own protection, for their own safety. James Knapp, the chair of Trans Ohio, says the hearings on the House bills surrounding gender identity are taking an emotional and physical toll on trans youth advocates. We've had a number of um, Claims of discrimination, harassment, um, people being followed home. Meanwhile, inside the State House, State Representative Adam Byrd says all have a right to express their freedom of speech. I've seen no evidence that this isn't a safe place for protesters. Byrd says he's fighting for parents' rights to stay in the loop on their child's sexual identity and to protect their bodies from any sex changes. I reject the term gender affirming care. I don't believe it's care to mutilate someone's healthy body. Meanwhile, State Representative Michelle Grimm claims these bills are pushing Ohio backwards, taking away the privacy and bodily rights of children. This forces teachers to out children to their parents. Grimm says the state's actions are harmful and she hopes will be stopped by the federal government. We're going to force kids to detransition. So we're going to force a lot of kids to um, not be able to live their authentic selves. Regardless of the side, the lawmakers agree these decisions are not taken lightly. I'm not going to get to the governor's desk anytime soon, and I think that speaks to the fact that it is tough. We do weigh a, a lot of different issues when we consider these bills. Ashley Bornanson reporting. Opponents of those bills say access to health care is critical. NTV's Kiana Deitches spoke to parents advocating for health care resources. Jean Ogden's journey with gender-affirming care began when her daughter was 15 years old. Several years later, she says she's tired of fighting for resources like health care. It's exhausting fighting for yourself, and it's exhausting fighting for basic human rights like health care and dignity, respect. In the midst of a youth mental health crisis, parents say it's more important than ever to protect the right to health care. I have a 22-year-old trans daughter, and when she came out to me when she was 15, I was scared. Jean Ogden says fear steered her away from getting care for her daughter, Cam. The information I found scared me. It uh, told me she was going to harm herself, change her body, and regret it when she was older. Um, and so we decided to, you know, push off any... Um, exploration of that with her. We were afraid to take her to a gender clinic. She says she wasn't only afraid of the medical treatment, but afraid of how she'd be treated by others. We hear that these kids are delusional or that they're mentally ill. Looking back, she says none of it was true, adding that Cam went on to get care on her own when she turned 20. I realized how much she had suffered during those intervening years. And she did. She, she's a bright kid, but she struggled. Now she spends her days advocating for resources for other trans youth. I know now that gender clinics, you know, most of the kids that go to a gender clinic do not receive any kind of medical care. I know that anything like uh, puberty blockers or um, hormones are never given to kids until they hit puberty. And her fight does not end here. We have a list of resources for parents and teens on our website, 10tv.com. In Columbus, Keanu Deitches, 10TV News. One year since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, eliminating the federal constitutional right to abortion. And since then, almost every state has taken action to either restrict or expand abortion access. CBS News reporter Natalie Brand takes a look at what that means for clinics on both sides of the issue.
And for 38 years, I practiced for the day that Roe versus Wade was overturned. So this is when the real work begins. And Sylvia Johnson runs a pregnancy center in Houston, Texas, a state with one of the country's strictest abortion bans. Women are needing more services and they're looking for places so that those services can be provided for them. Johnson estimates demand has grown 20 percent for the support her faith-based nonprofit provides. She's doubled medical staff, added case managers, and opened an additional location. Are the cases tough? Yes. Is it hard? Yes. Is there a lot of fear gripping our this, this culture and, and the community and the women that we're serving? Yes, we're seeing a lot of that. Texas is one of 20 states that has banned or limited access to abortion since the Dobbs decision, while just as many states have strengthened the right to an abortion. Courts have blocked or paused some of the bans with legal challenges ongoing. The current state of the courts and the restrictions is nearly impossible for us to follow. Dr. Shanti Ramesh serves as the chief medical officer for the Virginia League for Planned Parenthood, which is seeing a rise in out-of-state patients seeking an abortion. Yeah, so we're seeing patients from really across the whole southeast. Dr. Ramesh says her clinic has also expanded services such as medication abortion. At our four sites, we're seeing patients almost every day of the week. We've opened up some weekend availability or evening availability to try to, try to meet the needs. Ramesh and Johnson are working to keep up with different needs as the Dobbs decision changes where abortion can be accessed in America. Natalie Brand, CBS News, Washington. Now, as for the political battle over abortion, a new poll from USA Today and Suffolk University found the abortion issue is tied as the fifth most important topic on voters' minds behind inflation, immigration, threats to democracy, and gun control. Technology becoming a critical part of the state's strategy to stop drug abuse and violence. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine talked about how analysts track electronics like cell phones to get to the root of the problem. Tennessee's Kevin Landers was at that drug abuse summit. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine is requesting lawmakers increase funding for Ohio's Narcotic Intelligence Center. That statewide task force is tasked with disbanding drug trafficking throughout the state. This is what ONIC really specializes in doing. It's, it's an intelligence unit. Cell phones are not the only thing that it does. Uh, you can pull information down from computers. Uh, they're just great in organizing a, a lot of data. Governor DeWine says he's asking lawmakers to spend $13 million across the biennium to help the ONIC. He's also tasking the Ohio Liquor Control Commission and OHP to assist local law enforcement to combat violent crime. Kevin Landers, 10TV News. Northwest Ohio still recovering from tornado damage. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine got a firsthand look at the damage. He visited Toledo, where neighbors were still cleaning up their properties. Governor DeWine says he's working to figure out why no emergency sirens went off when the tornado actually hit. We didn't get it here, and I guess the question that the community needs has a right to know is why not? And I'm not saying anybody did anything wrong or did anything bad, but... They owe us. The Weather Service really owes us, I think, a really full explanation. And we know the National Weather Service did not issue a tornado warning for the Toledo area until after the EF2 tornado had already hit. Kicking mobility into high gear. Interestingly, people get a little uncomfortable about the word wealth, especially with people of color in the conversation. But it's really about, and studies now show, that when black businesses are doing well, the entire community is doing well. So this is really a conversation about economic development. Coming up, mobility and color. TV's Tracy Townsend speaks with two Central Ohio leaders, making sure everyone benefits in the field. 
But first, the East Palestine train derailment. Was the controlled burn really necessary? The panel pushing to get answers after this. This is Doug Ute, Executive Director of the Ohio High School Athletic Association. High school coaches can be the biggest influence on kids having a positive experience in sports. Sports set the foundation for life lessons that remain long after playing days are over. This is Gene Smith. Please join Life Sports at The Ohio State University and the Ohio High School Athletic Association as we partner with the Susan Crown Exchange on its Million Coaches Challenge. Get involved and learn more at go.osu.edu backslash coach beyond. When kids need medical care, they will often face stressful and life-changing experiences. They miss out on the things that make being a kid fun. Starlight Children's Foundation has delivered happiness to 17 million seriously ill kids and their families at more than 800 children's hospitals and healthcare facilities. Our programs entertain and inspire hospitalized kids. Learn more at starlight.org. That's starlight.org. I'm John O'Hurley, and I support Paralyzed Veterans of America because our heroes have sacrificed so much for our independence. I had just come home. I had noticed my legs were swelling. Next thing I know, it was three weeks later. I was paralyzed. PVA has brought me back to life. While parachuting with my platoon, my parachute didn't open. It left me paralyzed. I just don't think my family would be as happy as they are without the support that I received from Paralyzed Veterans of America. For more than 75 years, Paralyzed Veterans of America has kept a promise to never leave a fallen hero behind. That's why Paralyzed Veterans of America is providing specialized medical care, life-changing treatments, benefits our heroes earned, the jobs they want, and the accessible vehicles and homes they need. Our Paralyzed Veterans have helped us live the lives we enjoy today. It's our turn to give them the best lives possible. To learn more, go to pva.org today. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Clay Gordon, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back. Five months after the Norfolk Southern train derailed, a panel of NTSB investigators grilled leaders from Norfolk Southern about the moments after the wreck. As 10TV's Lindsay Mills reports, one hearing revealed how long it took for first responders to get vital information about the crash. Jessica Connard is a mom and lifelong East Palestine resident. She wonders every day if she and her family should take on the financial burden and leave for their safety. This NTSB hearing, I really feel like, is critical, not just for rail safety, but for my community to really start healing and understanding what happened. We've been waiting a long time. She was among the many who attended a community meeting with the NTSB ahead of the start of a two-day investigative hearing at East Palestine High School. The whole point of this is making sure that this doesn't happen again. It was revealed that critical information took hours to get to the people who needed it. It revolves around what the train was carrying. Here's the timeline from the NTSB. On February 3rd, 2023, at 8.55 p.m., the derailment happened. At 9.04 p.m., East Palestine dispatch called Norfolk Southern. At 9.30, they tried calling again. An hour after the wreck, Columbiana County Emergency Management Agency received the consist from Norfolk Southern. Between 9.45 and 10 p.m., the deputy chief in East Palestine got it. 10.23, another responding fire chief received the consist. 1.30 a.m., East Palestine police received it. Then at 2.15 a.m., the East Palestine fire chief found the consist printed on a desk 
at the command post. However, an email chain between Norfolk Southern and its contractor for monitoring air quality showed the contractor was notified only minutes following the derailment. How is it that Norfolk Southern could provide the contractors responsible for cleanup with the information within 12 minutes of the derailment and took an hour to several hours before providing it to emergency responders? I can't explain uh, the time frame. And that was Lindsay Mills reporting. Much of the hearing also centered around the decision to vent and burn in the days following the wreck. This was the grand opening for the largest downtown Columbus area development since the Arena District. It's called the Gravity Project. It's located in Franklinton. It's considered the largest conscious community in the world. And now phase two of the project is complete. These are places where people live, but it's much more than that. It's not just a place where people work and live. This is a place where we bring all the things that they love to do, that they're passionate about, right to their home, right to where they work, in hopes that you know it's more convenient and uh, allows them better access to the things they love about life. Phase three of this project is expected to get started next month. When COVID forced many people home, many didn't return. We've covered this before, but this morning we're learning how Central Ohio banks are playing a key role. Tendivy's Kevin Landers is searching for answers and the identity of the capital city skyline. By 2019, the percentage of vacant office space in the Columbus area was 14%. And today we're sitting at about 26.7%, so almost double the vacancy post-COVID. In downtown, known as the Central Business District, it's not much better. The CBD which is what we call the Central Business District, uh, was sitting at about 13.4% pre-pandemic. It's at it's about 23.3% today. What's causing the problem? We are seeing a higher uh, vacancy rate for sure um, because of the work from home situation. Most of the empty space is what's known as middle tier. They are often older buildings that don't have amenities as newer ones. It's those buildings, experts say, that will need to either be remodeled or repurposed to attract paying tenants. We're really talking about the middle tier, which is about 40, 40-45% of the buildings in here in Columbus. They're going to have the decision to make. While Columbus is experiencing high office vacancies, experts say there's no need to sound the alarm. Unlike larger cities with high office vacancies like Los Angeles, New York, or Boston, Columbus remains a less expensive alternative to high rents without major price swings that larger cities tend to have. Our property values have never skyrocketed the way like the west coast or south or east coast have even banks aren't concerned about high vacancy rates because columbus they say continues to grow so don't really think it's going to be a big issue here Combs says vacancies don't always mean landlords aren't getting paid a lot of times the vacancy rate is there uh, but the leases are still in effect so let's say a uh, a company moved out and downsized well they're still liable for that lease which means there's still cash flow coming to the property and i think that there's a lot of dynamics in columbus that say that we're better positioned than most cities because of our growth i think there's an assumption that when you hear national numbers that are in those ranges of 30 percent 40 percent we don't necessarily see columbus getting there uh, because we do have job growth kevin landers 10 tv news Experts say they don't believe higher interest rates play a large role in what investors decide to do with vacant office space. Mobility is all about moving people and moving goods. Smart mobility is all about automation, data, technology being used for the future. 
Dublin is one of several central Ohio cities making mobility the foundation for economic success. City leaders and corporate leaders are looking to include people of color to the 33 smart corridors through what's called mobility and color. NTV's Tracy Townsend has more on how everyone benefits from this. So there is a infrastructure on the Beta District Corridor mm-hmm. that includes fiber, uh, dedicated short-range communications, which is a wireless standard that communicates with vehicles, allows vehicles to communicate with each other. And uh, the Honda plant is there, the Transportation Research Center, Honda R&D of the Americas, and an automotive supply chain, just mm-hmm. dozens and dozens of companies that are all doing engineering and that kind of work. It's also known as the Beta District and branded as where the future is tested in the Columbus region. Here's an aerial view of the major highway interchanges and its accessibility from I-270 and all points to the north and west. Doug McCullough, who's the chief information officer for the city of Dublin and Columbus C. CEO Collective President and CEO Elizabeth Joy are laser focused on getting business leaders of color connected to the corridor. These business leaders, these people of color, were they just sort of working on their own in their own spaces before being part of this sort of collective, for lack of a better word? They were, and uh, we began to notice that there were people working in these spaces who really had a legitimate interest in these types of technologies and infrastructure, but were not being invited or introduced to the resources and the agencies and the governments that could inform them in ways that could assist them in building partnerships and all sorts of other things beneficial to their businesses. McCullough and his team in Dublin put together what's called Mobility in Color to expose and connect black business leaders. He and Joy say it's a match that will benefit everyone. Interestingly, people get a little uncomfortable about the word wealth, especially with people of color in the mm-hmm. conversation. But it's really about, and studies now show, that when black businesses are doing well, the entire community is doing well. So this is really a conversation about economic development. Mm-hmm. And we know that very often black business owners and leaders are left out of conversations when there's opportunities for business, when there's opportunity for investment. For Face the State, I'm Tracy Townsend. The political implications of a plea deal and how drama within the Trump family could play a role in the upcoming election. We speak with a political expert at The Ohio State University. And awarding a good cause, the safe driving effort being honored by 10TV News. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Mom's early Alzheimer's diagnosis was hard to take. And when I left the oven on, we decided together that it was time to see a doctor and make a plan. Early detection gave us more time to seek out information and support as a family. If you or your family are noticing changes, it could be Alzheimer's. Talk about seeing a doctor together. For more information, visit alz.org slash time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Clay Gordon, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back to Face the State. I'm Clay Gordon. A plea deal has been reached in the federal investigation into the president's son, Hunter Biden. Mike Valerio has the latest. Hunter Biden, the son of President Joe Biden, will plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax offenses and struck a deal with federal prosecutors to resolve a felony gun charge. According to prosecutors, Hunter Biden owed at least $100,000 in federal taxes in both 2017 and 2018, but did not pay what was due to the IRS by the deadlines. 
Last year, a lawyer for the president's son said his client has since, quote, fully paid those IRS debts. The 53-year-old also struck a deal with federal prosecutors to resolve one felony gun charge. In 2021 interviews with the media, Hunter Biden talked about how he'd been addicted to drugs, which raised the possibility he broke federal law when he bought a firearm. The White House issued a statement saying, quote, the president and first lady love their son and support him as he continues to rebuild his life. We will have no further comment. Former President Donald Trump slammed the plea deal. Writing on Truth Social, it equates to a mere traffic ticket. The U.S. attorney for Delaware, David Weiss, appointed by former President Trump, says the Hunter Biden investigation is ongoing. Republican Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy says the agreement won't impact a Republican congressional probe into the Biden family's business dealings. It actually should enhance our investigation because the DOJ should not be able to withhold any information now. I'm Mike Valerio reporting. A trial date in August was set for former President Donald Trump's charges related to classified documents. Both the Hunter Biden case and the Trump case will likely fuel conversation and controversy in the 2024 presidential campaign cycle. We spoke with Professor Emeritus of Political Science Paul Beck at The Ohio State University. One needs to differentiate between the, the facts of the plea deal and the guilt that has been basically accepted by Hunter Biden and whether it is actually tied either to actions that Biden did, and I mean Joe now, uh, when he was vice president or even even since then and during the campaign. And of course, that link, I think that you know, some are going to charge that there is indeed a link there, but it's not obviously proven. And Hunter Biden has not admitted to that at all. Uh, and so it may well be that there will be an attempt to try to connect him to his dad. Uh, but the attempt, I, I think, is, is going to fail. It's, it's politics. The ethical issues, I think, are even greater when it comes to the Trump family. Uh, and, you know, there are going to be allegations coming from the Democrats that the Trump family has taken advantage of his position, Donald Trump's position as president, uh, to cement deals with the Saudis for a variety of other things. Uh, so there's going to be this kind of back and forth on the ethics of it. The mission is simple, keep Ohio teenagers safe on the road. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says the number of 16 to 19-year-old drivers involved in deadly crashes is three times higher than other age groups. One organization is trying to pump the brakes on that statistic. This program is now older than some of its drivers. Started in 2006, 10,000 Ohio teens have taken better Ohio teen driver curriculum to be more confident behind the wheel. With whatever conditions are thrown their way. But you're trying to get them as prepared as possible for any type of moment. Absolutely. The main concept of the day is to remove that first wide-eyed moment. Just purge that out of the teen driver's system and replace what we call panic input with a trained reaction. Anything they do with us in the program, in a controlled environment, they could experience any day of the week out in, in just everyday traffic. The spin avoidance car simulates spin outs and slippery weather. It's this advanced driver training beyond the rules of the road, which is part of a new groundbreaking study published in the journal Transportation Research Record, conducted by Ohio Health Grant Medical Center Trauma Services and Better Ohio Teen Drivers. We kind of did the math on that and thought, all right, why do these kids crash? A lot of people think it's because of the mobile device. 
Most of these crashes are driver error due to inexperience leading to loss of control of the vehicle. We wanted to give back for their efforts and their partnership with Maria's message. On behalf of 10TV and the Tegna Foundation, we present this check to the Better Ohio Teen Drivers organization and to you for everything that you guys do in our community. So congratulations. And Thank you very ho- much. Hopefully this goes very far for everything you do in our community. Yep, appreciate it. Appreciate working with Dom and, and Channel 10. Thank you very much. Better Ohio Teen Drivers Incorporated received $4,400 from the grant to expand resources and cover training costs. And remember, you can sign the pledge to stop distracted driving right now by going to 10TV.com slash Maria's message. Thank you all for being here with us today. Have a great rest of your weekend. And remember, we'll see you bright and early tomorrow morning at Wake Up Sea Bus starting at 425. That's again Clay Gordon, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Each year, Ohioans are injured and killed in train car accidents that could have been avoided with properly functioning gates and flashing lights. Facts show that gates and lights together prevent more train car accidents than stop signs or crossbucks alone. How can you help? Approach all crossings with caution and report bad railroad crossings at angelsontrack.org. That's angelsontrack.org. Because bad crossings kill good drivers. Sponsored by Angels on Track, aired by OAB and this station. When times get dark, we can't see the help that's all around us. Maybe you're not sure how you'll make rent. Or you lost your job. When you don't know where to turn, let 211 be your guiding light. Our guides are ready to connect you with the help you need. 211, how can I help you? Call or visit 211.org. 211, get connected, get help. A message from United Way and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Carol Johnson, who is the administrator of the Health Resources and Services Administration. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us about the uh, administration. What is it? Uh, So we're the Health Resources and Services Administration. We're part of the Federal Department of Health and Human Services, and we provide and support services that help new parents, that support moms and infants, um, and that provide healthcare, support healthcare services in communities across the country um, through places like community health centers and rural health clinics. Okay, and I understand that you have a, a hotline for pregnant women and also those going through postpartum, right? Yeah, so we have a national maternal mental health hotline. And what this is, is it's a 24 7 hotline that's available to people all over the country. Um, uh, in English, Spanish, other languages if people need it, um, for, where, where pregnant people or uh, postpartum folks, um, uh, people who are uh, uh, experiencing those early days of uh, new parenthood or even later into parenthood can call and get emotional support or can call and just have a safe conversation, a safe space to have a conversation about um, whether you're feeling anxious or overwhelmed or, or, or depression or 
um, things that uh, are of concern to you, um, we wanted to make sure that there was a place that people could get direct access um, to some expert resources, have a conversation, um, get a little bit of support, and then if you need additional referrals, be able to do that and get you connected to services. But really, a lot of people use the line just to have the chance to to talk confidentially to someone when they're feeling anxious or feeling overwhelmed or need um, that support. The hotline number is 1-833-TLC-MAMA or 1-833-852-6262. Okay, and we'll have those numbers again toward the end. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the mental health concerns of women who are pregnant or young mothers? You know, I think that um, it is uh, it is very nice at uh, Mother's Day for us to be able to celebrate all the wonderful things about motherhood and all that our mothers have given us and mothers give to their children. But it also is a chance for us to recognize um, that pregnancy and the postpartum period, they're hard. Um, and it's a lot of change and it's a lot of challenge. Whether it's your first pregnancy or, or your second or your third and now you have multiple children at home, it can be overwhelming. Um, it can be a time of challenge. And so we want to make sure that um, people have, uh, are able to get connected to counselors in that moment. And, you know, people experiencing, experience everything from anxiety, um, to, uh, from uh, feeling overwhelmed, to um, having postpartum depression, which is something that is treatable um, and it's critical for us to be able to deliver the message that you're not alone. Um, these are, this is, the others have gone through this. Um, we can uh, uh, get you connected to help. And so that's what um, all of our work is about here. You know, the, it's interesting, too, because uh, just the other day, Heather Armstrong, who was called the pioneering mommy blogger, who I guess 15 or 20 years ago started uh, blogging about her mental health concerns during motherhood and also a struggle with alcoholism, just recently ended her life at 47, which shows that even those who are self-aware, what a problem this is for people to grapple with. You know, um, our condolences to her family. It's a devastating loss and to all of those who got support from her online. Um, You know, I think that one of the things we are working on across the board is making sure that mental health needs are better recognized and supported across the board. So in addition to the work we're doing here, we also um, support training more primary care providers to recognize mental health conditions, to be able to support folks, training more OBGYNs to be able to provide mental health support, Um, really thinking about pediatricians, we're training pediatricians, really thinking about how we better integrate, you know, at the end of the day, when someone raises their hand and says they need help, or when you're visiting a primary care physician for a physical health condition, but you're showing signs of other needs, we want to make sure that you get that help. Do you get a feeling coming out of the pandemic that it's especially uh, complicated for young mothers with kids who maybe, you know, for the first couple of years of their lives were around people wearing masks and all that kind of thing? I think it's complicated. It's complicated, frankly, for people who had children during the pandemic and, you know, uh, you know, and are now um, uh, navigating returning to school and returning to all the things and work and all the things that um, make that complicated. So there's a lot of stressors in people's lives. Um, and um, frankly, there's what was associated with the pandemic. But a lot of this, a lot of these challenges existed in, in the past. Um, and we just didn't have 
the kind of investments and resources that we're really working in the Biden-Harris administration to make sure that we're investing in these tools and, and recognizing and lifting up and saying out loud that you're not alone. This isn't unique to you. We can help you. There are ways to get support. And that's a critical message for us is to make sure that folks don't feel like this is some unique circumstance to them and then are afraid to ask for help, that help is available. Just a couple of minutes to go here with Carol Johnson. She's the administrator of the Health Resources and Services Administration. Now, this uh, National Maternal Mental Health Hotline, if somebody calls it, how is it dealt with, you know, in the first couple of minutes on the phone? What happens? Yeah, so everybody's experience is different. It depends on what they bring to the call and what they, kind of conversation that they want to have. But what we have available are um, experts in mental health and in maternal health who um, – uh, can just uh, help if you want to just share your experience or share what's concerning to you, share what you're grappling with, um, they're able to lead you through a conversation and help you um, identify what um, what kind of things can be of support to you. And so we have um, a host of uh, mental health clinicians and doulas and peer support specialists and and healthcare providers like doctors and nurses and all of the those folks are available on the line in ways that can be uh, that, that can be responsive to whatever conversation folks want to have. And and just uh, reiterating, like you can call or you can text, and you can call or text at ten o'clock at night or two o'clock in the morning. You know, if you're having one of those uh, late night meetings, you know, they're they're av- we're available twenty four seven. And 12,000 calls in the past year, which shows how significant the need is. Uh, can you give us uh, the numbers again? The number for the hotline is 833-TLC-MAMA, M-A-M-A, or 833-852-6262. Okay. Uh, Carol, anything else you'd like to add? I'd just like to say that, you know, on this Mother's Day, I want to make sure folks um, know that... Uh, it's, it's such a wonderful opportunity, again, for us to celebrate and lift up moms, but also to say that if you need help, if you're struggling, please call the hotline. Please get the support you need, um, and, um, and help is available. Great. Again, uh, Carol Johnson, she is the administrator of the Health Resources and Services Administration. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. What is dedication? The thing that drives me every day as a dad is Dariana. We call him uh, Day Day for short. Every day he's hungry for something, whether it's attention, affection, knowledge. And there's this huge responsibility in making sure that when he's no longer under my wing, that he's a good person. I think the advice I would give is you don't need to know all the answers. The craziest thing was believing that your dad knew everything. So as a dad, you felt like you had to know everything. You had to get everything right. It's okay to make mistakes. As long as it's coming from love, then, you know, it kind of starts to work itself out. I want him to be able to sit back one day and go, we worked together, we did a good job. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Holly Holtson, who is the state director for AARP in Ohio. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me today. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, tell us uh, what AARP is. AARP is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization 
fighting to empower Ohioans to live how they want as they age. Okay, and uh, you are trying to get the word out about the number of Ohioans who are caring for elderly relatives. Uh, I guess that's been skyrocketing, right? Yeah, every day we know that more than 48 million people in the U.S. take care of parents, spouses, grandparents, and other loved ones so they can live independently as long as possible. And here in Ohio, more than 1.5 million are providing about $21 billion worth of unpaid care for a loved one. Wow, one and a half million. That number would have been just uh, inconceivable probably 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, and what we need to remember is most of us are or have been or will be in the future a family caregiver or will need help to live independently as we age. And I guess the the problem is that, you know, a lot of these people that do this are obviously it's almost like a second job for them to take care of an elderly person in their household. But they have to juggle that with everything else in their life. And and there's nothing to show for it. Yeah, you, you know, you're right. You know, family caregivers help with everything, including medication, medical care, meals, bathing, dressing, grocery shopping, transportation, and much more. And we know that about 50% of female caregivers have had to leave the workforce or reduce their hours. And they're also spending about $7,000 a year out of their own pocket on care-related costs. So what sort of help is available, uh, you know, uh, I know that Ohio, for a long time, governors have talked about increasing programs that help the elderly stay at home rather than go into a nursing home. Does that help in some of these causes, maybe with professional home health care or things like that? Yeah, you know, it's really important that lawmakers provide family caregivers with some help, as you mentioned, so their older loved ones can stay at home. You know, and we're making progress. Um, you know, for example, the White House recently signed an executive order that provides support for family caregivers. And a recent AARP survey found that 75% of voters 50-plus think it's important for Congress to help Americans stay in their homes. And that's why we're out here mobilizing caregivers to fight for some common-sense solutions. And right now, our state budget, one of the important provisions that was actually cut from the Senate version were the Healthy Aging Grants. And this was $40 million to help keep people at home. And it's really important that we start supporting caregivers and take action to prevent them from staying in nursing homes that, quite frankly, cost taxpayers money. I keep seeing a statistic that says something like 10,000 baby boomers nationwide are retiring every day, which means beyond retirement, that means that, you know, probably that many per day are moving into areas where we're just living at home and maintaining their own health is becoming more and more difficult. Yeah, and, you know, staying at home can become more difficult, but it's really important that we... listen to the challenges caregivers are facing and take action because it helps save time, money, and it really keeps people where they want to be, which is at home. 
What is the the logic behind cutting back on those services in Ohio? Is it just part of budget trimming, you know, trying to find money in one place and putting it in a different place or what? You know, that is a great question. And that's why we keep fighting to support caregivers because it's common sense. We can keep people at home and we can save Medicaid dollars. What about the staffing problem with, uh, you know, home health care, maybe nurses that go into the homes? I know that nursing homes themselves are having problems with staffing levels as well. Yeah, and, you know, AARP Ohio has been very supportive of supporting staff and residents in nursing homes. And part of that does have to do with wages. But along with wages, we want to make sure that nursing homes are providing quality care and it's transparent and they are accountable to the residents in giving that care. We want to make sure any extra dollars actually goes to providing direct care services to residents, which means paying for wages. Talking with Holly Holson, she's the state director for Ohio for AARP. What sort of uh, advice do you have for family members that are in this situation where they're caring for a loved one in the home? That's a great question. You know, while we continue fighting for caregivers, there are some steps that you can take now to empower yourself and your loved ones, such as, you know, make sure you keep the home safe. Make adaptations uh, to your loved one's home to accommodate their needs and make it less hazardous. You know, this could be even a simple fix, such as removing a rug improving lighting to prevent falls. You know, bigger changes could happen, such as adding a wheelchair ramp as well. We suggest you stay organized. Caregivers are tracking a lot of information, you know, emergency phone numbers, health records, and it can become very overwhelming. There are caregiving apps that can help you stay on top of everything. There are also local services and resources that may also be able to provide some help. We also suggest that you advocate for yourself. Let doctors know that you are the primary caregiver and need to be informed about your loved one's condition. Make sure you're asking for training if you're expected to do procedures, you know, such as injecting medication or changing bandages. And lastly and not least, make sure you ask for help. Don't be afraid to rely on your team of family and friends, to fill in on some of your caregiving tasks so you can take a break and take care of yourself. Don't feel guilty. It's so important to care for yourself as well. You know, these responsibilities are massive, and they also come with a lot of stress and in some cases maybe even risk because if you've got, you know, as you mentioned, maybe some hazards around the home, falling is a huge, I think it's the number one cause of death for older Americans. So you've got to make sure, as you said, that the house is safe, plus balancing medications and all that stuff. Right. It's important just to look at your surroundings and make those small adjustments to keep your loved ones safe. If people want more information about all this, Holly, how do they find it? We have some great information on our website. We have the AARP Family Caregiving website at aarp.org slash caregiving. And we offer free care guides, information, checklists, and online community that support all types of caregivers. And you'll also find our Ohio Caregiver Resource Guide that provides some state-specific information 
and access to programs, services, and agencies in the community. Okay, aarp.org slash caregiving. Uh, again, it's uh, Holly Holson. She is the state director for Ohio with the AARP. Thanks so much for the information. Thank you for having me today. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.